fab. I'd love you to turn to uh, John chapter 5. John chapter 5 is page 1068. And one of the things that, um, that we love to do as a church is we love to sing, we love to pray, but we also love to explore the Bible together. We love to explore what God has to say to us. We believe this book is the Word of God. We believe that it was written by human beings, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. So every word that we have is God's Word to us. And we believe that in this book, we don't simply find information, but we find God showing us what he's really like. He wants you to know him. He's not hiding from you in a far-off planet trying to avoid being discovered. Instead, he wants you to know him. And so he's given us this word. And so what we do is we take the Bible seriously, we take a bit of it, and we just work through it, chunk by chunk. Last term, if you were here, we were doing John's Gospel. We did John chapters 1 to 4. That's why we're doing chapter 5. It's not that complicated. And what we're going to do for the next few weeks is work pretty slowly through John chapters 5 and 6. And the reason we're going to go slowly is because they are mind-stretching and heart-exploding passages. They really will stretch us to think. And whether you're someone who's used to coming to church and you'd already say, yeah, I know God. Well, God has more he wants to show you. He wants you to know him better. Or perhaps you're here and you say, I don't know God. I don't know anything. I'm here because someone asked me to come. Well, if you're here, then I'm so pleased you're here. And I really hope that as we look at this, you will discover the God who wants to know you. The God who wants to reveal himself to you. And in particular, we're going to think for the next few weeks about what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. If you know anything about Jesus, you probably have heard him referred to as the Son of God. But it may have puzzled you, what does that really mean? How can God have a Son? And we're going to look closely at this relationship between the Father and the Son. That's what chapters 5 and 6 of John's Gospel are really about. And we're going to see this extraordinary reality that the Father and the Son are one. And that the Father and the Son... When you watch the Son working, you're seeing the Father working. And if you want to know what the Father's like, then you look at the Son. And so we're going to discover the Father, God the Father, revealing us himself to us in his Son as we watch his Son work. But that's all for the next few weeks. And I hope that whets your appetite to say, I would love to know this God more. Or perhaps, I'd love to know if he's even there. This is how you can know. But we're going to start with the first story in John chapter 5. And it is a little puzzling. But let me read it. I'd love you to follow it with me. And I wonder what you make of this story. Remember, as you watch the sun working... You see the father working. The father's not mentioned in our passage. We're going to get to him next week and much, much more. But don't forget that the works of the son, that's Jesus, reveal the father. Let me read from 
John chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. But Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Do you know what's happening on the 13th of June this year? 13th of June... It's not the Queen's birthday. It is International Wellness Day. Celebrated annually to celebrate what is becoming one of the fastest growing industries in our world. Wellness. People are pursuing wellness. And it's becoming increasingly the case. Now, this will come as a slight surprise to you, but this hasn't always been quite so stark. There was a time not that long ago when really what people were pursuing was wealth. We wanted stuff. I wanted material wealth. I wanted to be rich. But our culture is shifting and we've got to see this. We've got to be able to read our culture, not just kind of swim in it and ignore it, but read it. Our culture is shifting away from the accumulation of material stuff to the pursuit of wellness. That is to, to the pursuit of that place where I am in, where my mind and my body are well. Emotionally, spiritually, physically, environmentally. But we long for wellness. If you go to Harrods, there is a wellness clinic in Harrods. And it advertises itself as the one-stop shop for all your wellness needs. So now you know. Go there. Or come to Jesus. 
Jesus asks this amazing question in verse 6. Do you want to get well? I wonder today if I was to say to you, are you well? I wonder how you'd answer me. Are you well today? You may say, well, I've got a little sniffle. Struggling to shake off the Christmas cold. Now, I'm talking deeper than that. Are you well? Is it well with you? Are you in a place where you say, this feels right? And it may be that for some of us, that is the thing we so desperately long to pursue. And the problem with wellness in our world is it's a slippery little eel, isn't it? Because you think you've got it, and then something goes wrong. And suddenly wellness is gone again. We've got to go chasing after it again. And wellness is an elusive thing. And so here comes Jesus striding into your life right now and saying, do you want to get well? That's where we're heading today. Jesus is going to teach us how to be well. Jesus came into this world. The work of the Son, which is the work of the Father, is to make us well. Let's back up, back up, back up. We need to go through this story. Okay, I want you to follow through this story with me. We're going to work through what John records for us. John records it so that we can know it, so that we can understand who this man Jesus really is. And we're going to look at this in three kind of main chunks. Firstly, I want us to examine the place where this story happens. So have a look down with me at the, uh, at the place. Look at verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, so we're in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, the center of worship, the center of politics, the center of economy, the center of everything, and particularly where the temple was, the place where people would come to meet with God. So they're in Jerusalem, and if Jesus is in Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. There's a number of feasts and festivals that the Jews would celebrate every year. And what John does in the next few chapters of his gospel is he builds the the things that he tells us around the festivals. So he mentions the festivals here. Then in chapter 6 and verse 4, we're told the Jewish Passover festival was near. So chapter 6, we're supposed to read with a Jewish Passover festival. Then you get to chapter 7, um, and in verse 2, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus said, let's, let's go. So you see, there's this, John wants us to see that there's something about the work of Jesus that is entirely appropriate to tie to the festivals, the feasting, the celebration of the Jews. Jesus has come to do something which is about festival. So here we are in Jerusalem, for the festival. But suddenly we're taken to a very obscure place in Jerusalem. It's a very surprising place that uh, we're, we're told about. There was, now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate, right. Who cares about the Sheep Gate? You don't, you probably don't necessarily know where the Sheep Gate is. The Sheep Gate is a very little gate. 
in the wall of Jerusalem. You can read about it in Nehemiah. It's in the northeastern corner of Jerusalem. It's a fairly insignificant gate, except for one thing. It's called the Sheep Gate because it's the gate that they bring sheep through. I've done my research. And in particular, they bring the lambs that are going to be offered for sacrifice in the temple through that gate. It's the sheep gate where the sacrificial lambs would come, the sacrificial animals would come to be offered in the temple for worship. And Jesus chooses to come through that gate. (laughs) And as he comes through that gate, he sees the pool. There's this pool that is there called the Pool of Bethesda. And it's surrounded by five covered colonnades, at which point you go, well, that sounds nice. The shade from the sun, big, five big pillars. We've only got four, but it's very similar. Five big pillars with coverings. and What a lovely spot with one of these nice warm pools where people can lie. And... But actually, verse 3 makes it very clear that this is a desperate place. You see, what is this pool known for? Well, verse 3 says, Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. There is a crowd around this pool. Now remember, it's feast time, it's festival time. So there are crowds in Jerusalem. There's a crowd in the temple celebrating God's goodness, celebrating worship to God. But Jesus does not choose to go to that crowd, he chooses to go to this crowd. Here's a very different crowd. A crowd that is made up of desperate, desperate needs. People who have nothing. Back in these days, there was no social services, there was no benefit system, there was no care. And so these people gathered around this pool. My guess is it wasn't the sort of place that people flocked to go and see. Wouldn't be very high on the list of tourist attractions in Jerusalem. Hey, where shall we go today? Hey, why don't we go to the pool of Bethesda and see all the... Poor people. Now, this was the place that actually you would avoid. And can I say, isn't that so true in cities? There are often places where there's huge need. And they tend to be the places that are avoided. Because you see, if all these people can be by this pool up in the northeastern corner of Jerusalem, at least we can sort of pretend they don't exist. At least we can sort of ignore them up there. And we can get on with our festival here. It's a place of desperate need. And John tells us of one in particular. One man who'd been an invalid for 38 years. We're not told exactly how long he'd been by the pool. But he'd been an invalid for 38 years. Here is desperate need. John is wanting us to see this is a place Deep sadness. But there's more we need to see about this pool, this place. Because the second thing I want us to see is that it's a cruel place. Now this might seem strange to you at first. You might say, well, this is why? This is a nice little pool, five-coloured colonnades. You know, people who are disabled come there. 
it's cruel because the thing that draws them to this pool is that there is a superstition that in this pool there is the power to heal them. That's why they come. They come to this pool and they gather here because they have this hope that perhaps the pool can fix them. It's almost certainly got a thermal spring attached to it and every now and again the water in the pool is stirred up, bubbles up from the spring. And when those bubbles come up, there's this superstition that is there that that's the moment when the pool is powerful to heal and we... We get this from the man's reply to Jesus when he says, I've no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So they're all lying there by this pool, desperate for this moment when the water is stirred up by a thermal spring. And that's the sign that the first one in the pool gets healed. I want to say to you, that is deeply cruel. Can you not see how horrific that is? It's horrific because it means that the very system itself guarantees that the person who gets to the pool first is the most able to get there. And therefore the one who is most likely to be able to go, I've been healed, and walk off. And all the other people are left waiting. And yet this pool holds them. This man has been by this pool for years and years and years. Why? Because this is how superstition works. Because what other hope has he got? This pool can make me well. If I can just get in the pool, it will make me well. And it's pitiful. And it's tragic. And it's cruel because it offers some hope. You see that, right? They're lying there and they have this tiny fragment of hope. That's what makes it so cruel. You know the phrase, it's the hope that kills you. Right, that's right. These guys aren't hopeless lying by the pool. They're hopeful in the pool, but the pool has no power to heal them. It's a superstition. It doesn't work. Now there is a verse in the footnotes. Just let me just cover this, um, just to be clear. There's a verse in the footnotes which um, was added into later manuscripts, but isn't in the original. The New Testament is written in Greek. It's not in the original Greek, the, the very earliest manuscripts. So it's obviously been la- added later on. And it talks about an angel of the Lord coming down and stirring up the waters. And the first one into the pool after each disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. That's a later addition. There's no evidence that that is true. Actually, what we've got in the story is this vain hope. And let's face it, this cannot be the work of God. Because there is no way that the God that we know and the way that God that we love says, tell you what, let's have a race. Fittest one, first one, get in the pool, you can be healed. That's not the work of God. So here is this superstition. But here's the trouble with superstitions. You can't leave. You see, once you've invested that time in that pool, 
You can't leave. Not even for a moment. Because you see, this is how the psychology works of superstition. If I go now, what if I'm away and I miss the pool? It's a bit like the person who plays the National Lottery and plays the National Lottery with the same numbers every single week. That's a nightmare. Because it means that you are absolutely trapped. You know that the National Lottery is hardly ever... You know you're not going to win. But you think, maybe. And you play the same numbers every week. And you can't not play the numbers because you wake up in a cold sweat going, but what if this is the week that my numbers come up? And superstition works that way. It holds us. It's hopeless and yet it holds out hope to us. And it says, yes, I could provide what you want. Now we may say to ourselves, well, we're not so stupid as to think that wellness could be found in a pool. Well, it is extraordinary when you look at the wellness statistics, how many spa pools there are around our world where people gather in the vain hope that it will make them young and beautiful. But there are all sorts of things that hold us. All sorts of things that we say, that, that's my pool. That's the thing that will make me well. If I could just have that. But the problem is that often you discover that others seem to go ahead of you and they seem to get what you wanted. Do you ever find yourself envious of other people that they've got what you wanted? Do you look at other people and find yourself kind of jostling for position? Do you find yourself jealous? It may well be because we are not superstitious like this, but we are superstitious like that. I just need that. I just need that. And then I'll be well. So here's this man. It's a hopeless place. Desperate place. Cruel place. And I think many in our world feel that cruelty. They, love, they, they long for wellness, but they just can't get it. Because someone swoops in in front of them. But it is a known place. It's not a place that Jesus ignores. Here's what makes me most angry. So I've read this passage this week. Do you know what made me really angry? I'm like, where are the religious leaders? Where are they? Why are the religious leaders not here at this pool saying, don't do this. This is not right. Could it be that actually this pool is quite convenient for them? Because it kind of takes care of a whole difficult segment of society that they can conveniently ignore while they get on with their temple worship. There is a pool of people in desperate need. Where are you, religious leaders? I'll tell you who's there. Jesus is there. That's where Jesus goes. He goes to the place of desperate need. He goes to the place of cruel oppression. And he sees. And so verse... So verse 6, when Jesus saw this man lying there and learned he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? I I want you to see this. And interestingly, we saw this last week in another passage from another bit of the Bible, that Jesus sees the need. He sees you. He sees your longing. He sees your brokenness. He sees where things are not right. He sees your pain and your frustration and your disappointments and your failures. He sees it all. 
And then he asks the question, do you want to get well? What do you think of that as a question? I'm going to suggest, at first sight, it is a really strange question. Isn't it? Well, I, I think it is. And so do you. I can tell you do. It's just you're not playing. <laughs> do you want to get well? Jesus, he's been here for 38 years. He can't walk. Don't be so patronizing and so insensitive. Of course he wants to get well. Can I suggest it's less patronizing and less offensive than, how are you today? You all right? Having a nice day? Can I suggest there's nothing harsh or insensitive about this at all? Here is Jesus seeing a need, speaking to the man at his point of need. Yes, it seems strange, but as you begin to look at it harder, I actually think it begins to become a very challenging question. You see, what's the man's response? Do you want to get well? Yes, Jesus, of course I want to get well. No, that's not what he says. Verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. What if the man sees his greatest problem? I can't get in the pool. It's the pool. I must get in the pool. And so, to be honest, what he most wants from Jesus is what? Help to get in the pool. Because all my hope, all my trust is in the pool. That's where life is to be found. That's where wellness is to be found. It's the whole system that he's lived by. It's the system that has operated his whole world. Pool. I've just got to get to the pool. It's what occupies all his thinking, all his waking hours. Is it today? Can I get to the pool? Can I get to the pool? Jesus comes to him and says, do you want to get well? Because you're going to have to let go of the pool. You're going to have to let go of everything that you've lived for. You're going to have to change the whole way that you view this world. Do you want to get well? Do you see how suddenly this becomes a challenging question? But the, the, pool, the pool has been the center of my life. But do you want to get well? And actually what Jesus is asking this man to do is to leave a system that has held him captive for year after year after year. And that is not easy. Do you want to get well? I wonder if you can feel that challenge. It's all very well, isn't it, for us? We say, yeah, I want to get well. I want to get well. And I know what will make me well. This will make me well. So, Jesus, could you help me get in the pool? And Jesus comes and he says, no, you've got your object wrong. The thing that you think will make you well is not the thing that will make you well. So when Jesus comes and says, do you want to get well? He's saying, are you willing to let go of everything that you thought your life was about? Are you willing to let go of everything that you thought would make you well? 
If the thing that you think will make you well is your career, Jesus comes and he says, it's not your career. Do you want to get well? Or do you want a career? Let me just be very clear. Jesus is not saying therefore can't have a career. But he's saying if that's the thing, if that's your pool, he's saying let it go. Jesus, the thing that will make me well is this relationship. The thing that will make me well is this healing. The thing that will make me well is this life change. The thing that will make me well is whatever it is. And Jesus says, well, do you want to get well? And then he says these extraordinary words because you suddenly discover that this is a powerful question. This is not an idle question. He goes, do you want to get well? Yeah, I do. Jesus says to him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Can I just ask you, what bit does the pool play in the healing? Not a lot. In your face, pool, you stay there. Jesus looks the man in the eye and says, get up and walk. It's me. I make you well. (laughs) It's him. Only him. At once, at once the man was cured. Literally, the man was made well, made whole. He picked up his mat and walked. We get so used to these miracles if you're around church. That's extraordinary. He's not walked for 38 years. And Jesus, with the simple power of his words, says, get up and walk. And he does And he walks out in full view. And now look at the next sentence, just before verse 10. Suddenly John kind of throws this big hand grenade in. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. You know, ah, come on, Jesus. Not again. Why do you always have to do this stuff on a Sabbath? You know that gets everyone upset. This man's been ill for 38 years, Jesus. He would have been here tomorrow. Or yesterday. Why Sabbath? Well, to get the answer to that question, you're going to have to come back next week. Next week, we're going to look at why the Sabbath is so important. Next week, we're going to see why Jesus doing it on the Sabbath is not a kind of, oops, sorry, it is Jesus deliberately provoking a confrontation with the religious leaders. Because Jesus not only heals him, he then says, get up, take your mat and walk. He knows what he's doing. And the religious leaders are furious. I mean, it is tragic. They've never been to, they're not at the pool, they're not helping the people at the pool. But when one of the people at the pool is healed and they see him walking by, they go, oi, you're breaking the law. I mean, the bloke can walk. But he's breaking the law. They say, who told that the law forbids you to carry your mat? I love the man's reply. Well, actually, there was this bloke and he made me well. (laughs) And he told me to do it. I'm going to go with him. I actually, you know, if he can do this, I can do this. (laughs) And they say, verse 12... Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man doesn't know. This is very important. The man doesn't know. 
The man doesn't know Jesus' name. The man doesn't have faith in Jesus. The man hasn't, it's not about the man's faith. It's purely about the power of Jesus. Here is the work of Jesus to take that which is broken and make it whole. To bring wellness. And at that point, it could all end, right? How lovely. What a lovely story. Except there's one thing that really bugs me about this story. And I wonder if it's bugged you. What about everyone else? Why did he only heal one? You see, we could go, oh, what beautiful compassion. Isn't Jesus compassionate? Healing this man. Well, there was a crowd of people. Why didn't Jesus just walk in and go, all of you, get up. Does that bother you? I hope it does. And it's because actually the work of Jesus that he came to do is not simply to make this man walk. And if he'd healed everyone at the pool that day, then Jesus would have become a walking medicine man, a miracle worker, a man who goes around fixing people's physical diseases. And actually, we need to see that there is a greater work that Jesus came to do. You see, Jesus made this man walk, but he's not finished with him. Jesus made this man walk because he's showing us something that he wants you to know. And he made this man walk, and then he found him again in verse 14 at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now first, that sounds really harsh, right? So, woo, Jesus. Actually, I think what Jesus is doing is deeply loving. It does sound harsh. It does sound like, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Like when your parent says, eat your broccoli or your ears will fall off. <laughs> they don't say that. Did you? I, no, doesn't matter. But actually what Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, you think that you're well because your legs work again, but I've come to bring a wellness which is even bigger than that. I've come to deal with a bigger problem. I've come to fix a deeper need. I've come to deal with the biggest problem that you have. And so he homes in, not on the man's ability to walk or not, he homes in on the man's sin. He homes in on the fact that this man is living out of relationship with the God who made him. He's living against God, like all human beings are. So he comes to this man and he says, look, you can walk again, great, whatever, but you need to, you need to be fixed in your relationship with God. That's what really matters. I don't think he's saying your, your paralysis was a result of sin, so you better stop sinning or something even worse will happen. What he's saying is, you think 38 years lying paralysed is bad, but there is something worse than that. There's something worse. Because sin brings an urgent and an eternal problem. There's something worse that Jesus is talking about is the day when each of us will meet God face to face. And if we are his enemies, we will face his judgment, his punishment forever. 
and 38 years paralysed by a pool is nothing in comparison to that. Jesus loves this man too much. He loves this man too much to say, fine, go and have a nice life. Instead, he comes to me and says, no, you need to be fixed inside. You need to stop sinning. You need to have your sin dealt with. You need to be in a right relationship with God. And of course, that's the whole reason Jesus came. Do you remember the gate Jesus walked through? The sheep gate. Why? Because Jesus came to be one of those lambs. Jesus came to be a sacrifice. As he walks through the sheep gate to this pool, he knows that in just a few years he will enter Jerusalem to die. And he will die to make you well. To make you well in the most profound, deep, powerful way that you've ever experienced. To make you well not just in body but in soul. So that you can say, I'm well with God. There is no promotion or girlfriend or boyfriend or inheritance or fitness fad or quinoa salad that can get you anywhere that can touch your soul. Only Jesus can. And so when Jesus said to the man, get up, rise, pick up your mat and walk, it's just a small picture of what he will say to all of those who follow him. You deserve God's judgment. I take it in your place so that he can say to you, rise, get up and walk. Get up and live the life you were created to live. Get up and know God. Guys, we need to stop. There's so much. Sorry. Um, we'll pick it up again next time. We're going to dive next time into the Sabbath stuff. But for today, Jesus says, do you want to get well?